Hey, Transformationists, it's Tash, and welcome to this very special episode of The Transformationist. This week is really part two, uh, following on from last week's episode with Julia Grace, beautiful survivor, talking about her own journey into mental wellness and recovering from depression and putting great tools in place for her own life. This week, I'm going to be talking to my friend Daryl Habracken, and whilst I just appeared on his podcast episode, talking about all manner of things, in this episode, we unpack his very personal journey with depression and how that's related to his whole family. I do want to give you a little bit of a heads up and a watch out. Uh, This episode is called Locker Room Talk for a reason and there may be a bit of language that you don't want the kids or the grannies to hear. So be mindful as you listen but welcome to this episode of The Transformationist and may you be well. Transformationist is dedicated to real stories of transformation and the insights and actions that make it possible. Our guests share from their own stories the strategies and experiences that can help you shape transformation in your own life. Whether you are changing your mind, responding to change, or designing a life different from what you have right now, my hope is that these stories will inspire you and help you on the way. Hi, I'm Tash McGill, and welcome to The Transformationist. Transformation change is not always a matter of life crisis or an inciting incident that requires us to change our minds in a way that feels dramatic or large. Sometimes transformation is just making an ongoing effort as life progresses. And today joining me on the Transformationist podcast is Daryl Habracken, voice actor and cinematographer uh, and a good friend, fellow podcast host. Yes. Hello, Tash. How are you? <laughs> the hunter has become the hunted. Yeah. <laughs> well, it felt it, there is there's a certain um, reciprocity in podcast culture, I think, which is that if you have a great conversation with somebody on their podcast, Daryl Habracken results may vary. Boom. A- available on iTunes and YouTube and Podbean. And Podbean, there for you go. For people with mm, RPCs. <laughs> we usually like to save the promo for the end of the episode, but we've just leapt right in, so that's Getting good. It in twice, it's good. <laughs> Um, But I thought what was interesting about and why I wanted to have you on the show really is because we were catching up for coffee the other day and there were were a number of moments in our conversation where we were talking about change that we've both experienced in different ways and things that we're working on and I thought why not come and have a conversation about what life can look like when you're constantly aware of trying to grow, trying to evolve and be the best human that you can be. Clearly that's me. I'm the evolved human here, and I'm just interested in your observations of of my evolution. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But but in all seriousness, um, talk to us a little bit, just give us a little bit of an insight into who you are and and what your life is. Hi, my name's Daryl. I am a, I got a kind of an odd career path, whereas it was very, it was a duality. I am a voice actor and I am a cinematographer. I started working in film and television around about Jeepers, 18 years ago, I think it was 2000, 2001, I started doing this. And I was an editor and a bit of a jack of all trades as most New Zealanders are in this industry. And then I started to fine tune and realize that I really like camera work. So I became a cinematographer. And I had my little production company 
And when you're making little videos and things, you quite often need someone to voice content. Mm-hmm. And I just started doing it for our own projects. And then someone said, your voice is amazing. And I said, thanks. <laughs> and I thought, I'll get an agent. So I sent a demo reel, did a whole bunch of fake ads and whatnot into an agent. Mm-hmm. Don't you uh, love that process of recording fake ads? That's so Like a, a script that sometimes is 12 years old yeah. and you have to sell it like you really are selling it. And you've got to do hard sell and soft sell and mm-hmm. then you do some drama stuff so you get some script. For, I think I did Braveheart. I did Braveheart. <laughs> I, got, I got a script from Braveheart and I read some of that. Scotland, my land, all that sort of thing. Uh, yes, okay, yeah. And then... Mine I, was when Harry met Sally. Oh, really? Yeah. What yeah. scene? <laughs> The dinner scene. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, stories for later. Mm-mm, anyway. Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I sent that through and within an hour she called me up and she says, hi, I know you're not signed up with us, but we've got this job through. Would you be interested? In, first of all, would you be interested in signing up? And second of all, we've got this job through that we think you'd be great for. And I'm like, this is easy. So... Uh, within a period of an hour, I had gained an agent and I became the voice of the MGM channel on Sky TV. And that was my first uh, proper little gig. Uh, I did, and then after that, I did, uh, as well as you know, getting an agent and doing commercials and that sort of thing slowly to begin with, um, I had friends calling me up and doing things for them as well. And next thing you know, you remember, you know, Brendan Quaife. Oh Remember yeah, the oh the yeah, quaif. Yeah. BQ. He gets me in. He get he gets. This is years ago. This is like twelve years ago. He got me in to be the voice of Fisher and Paykel healthcare products, so CPAP machines and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff, right? And what they do is every CPAP machine comes with a DVD back in the day, and it was an instructional video, and I was the voice of that instructional video. Uh, and one thing that I forgot to mention earlier is I'm dyslexic, <laughs> so reading, not necessarily a strength. Not that you have to do that much at all when you're a voice actor and you have to read scripts for like a living. Who would have thunk, you know? <laughs> I have to read? I thought you just tell me what to say. No, but I, 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 said, I said to Brendan, I said to him, look, I'm going to do this, but you need to send me the scripts the day before so that I can read through them. Because as, as a dyslexic person, if you read things through, you can normally, it becomes an act. You sort of memorize bits of it and mm-hmm. it becomes a lot easier. He didn't send it through. So the next day I rock up and I get this fucking novel that I have to read. And this is all very technical medical jargon about CPAP and sleep apnea and all this sort of thing. Yeah, so people could die if they don't use it correctly, lives on the line. Yeah, Their life is on the line. Or poor sleep anyway. Poor sleep, bad, or lots of snoring. And I I did that and that was was one of my very early uh, voice gigs as well. And I took hours, literally hours to do this and it was... So embarrassing. I almost went, I'll never be able to do this. This is ridiculous. I'll never be able to do it. Um, and it, yeah, it was, it was terrible. But they really liked it. It took a long time to edit, poor Brendan. But <laughs> we got through it and they really liked my voice and I became the voice of Fisher & Bible healthcare products for a number of years. And I think they've changed the way they do it now. I've, I haven't done that for a very long time. So, the you know, the voice behind the microphone. Yes. And then the brains behind the camera, hmm. ever tempted to get in front of the camera? Oh yeah, I love it. I love <laughs> acting. No, I, um, my original uh, agent was Just Voice and after a while they had a change of hands and they started changing stuff and the work was drying up a little bit and I started to suspect maybe there was 
something wasn't quite working out with the agent, so I thought, I'll look for a new agent. So I went to Johnson Laird, which is pretty much, I would say... King of the crop here in New Zealand anyway. They are the number one. They've got all the international acts. They've got your Carl Urbans. They've Mm -hmm. got, you know, Thames and all that sort of stuff. I've been trying to get on their books for years, so... She's pretty ruthless, old Imogen. Yeah. She's she's pretty hardcore. So I went, yeah. and, I went and saw them and I said, look, I want to sign up with you guys, but I'm also interested in acting. Never really acted, never taken an acting class in my life, but I like to perform. And they were like, yeah, we'll take you on as voice talent. And I was, cool, that's sweet. And over time, they, I started getting scripts for commercials to act in and then Shortland Street and other little bits and pieces around the place. Nothing major, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun and it is something that I've thought maybe if I took it a little bit more seriously, you know, because when I, when I started working in film or studying film, I wanted, I, initially I made the, I had a choice. I was like, do I want to be an actor or do I want to be behind the camera? Because I love performing, I always have been when I was a kid and all that. But I thought, I met a lot of actors and I just thought, that's just too hard. I don't want to work in a cafe. So <laughs> I thought I'll work behind the camera and I'll be a director or something. So mm. that was sort of why I took that path. Mm-hmm. And now as it happens, it's all sort of come about that through my voice work, I get the occasional acting gig and that's a lot of fun and it's cool. But voice work is tremendous fun. Do you ever have that moment where you're maybe like walking through an airport or you're sitting in a cafe and somebody hears you talk and kind of looks over their shoulder because they recognise your voice? Yes. they. Most people can't pinpoint what they what they know it from. Right. But I definitely... If I'm going up to someone at a cafe, I'm ordering coffee and I'm like, oh, yeah, can I have a uh, long black with blah, blah, blah. They're looking at me and I'm thinking, yeah, they're putting it together, but they can't place it. Right. You know? It's not like it's not like being on like Shortland Street, for example. I was on that for two weeks. The iconic New the Zealand. iconic New Zealand soap, soap opera. opera. Yeah. I was on that for a couple of weeks as a drug, as a drug dealer. And I'm walking through, I'm doing a job in Christchurch the week it was on. And I'm going through the scanning part, you know, where they do the... Uh, they scan you for metal. And I'm walking through and the guy stops me and I'm like, oh, here we go. And this guy's like in his mid-40s and he says, you're the bad guy on Shortland Street. And I was like, wow, (laughs) wow. A couple of things. You recognize me from that. Other thing is, you're 45 years old and watching Shortland Street as a male? That was a little bit... Oh, he's probably got teenage daughters. Come on. Yeah, true. Cut him some slack. All the missus likes it. Uh, Was that the first time you've been recognized in the, you know, like that? No, I, um, back in the day, I used to do some stuff for Moon TV, which is a comedy show here in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Lee Hart and a bunch of other people, and it was just skits and that sort of thing. Oh, okay. And I, w- I actually started off as a camera operator on that and editing it, and then uh, Lee started getting me to come on to be the voice guy, but actually on camera. So mm-hmm. I'd be standing there with a microphone, Lee Hart and his team doing all that sort of, yeah. you know, describing what was going on. Kind of like Saturday Night Live shtick, really. Yeah. But with a distinctly... Down home New Zealand feel. Very down home New Zealand feel. <laughs> and that was, so no, I had, and I also had very long hair back then, which is ridiculous, but. I recall it was very curly. Very curly. Very curly. It was down to my shoulders and it was, it was nuts. Which doesn't sound that long until you realise what a, an enormously large head you have. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Dash, thanks. Thank you, Sorry. Dutch blood. Wicked. Couldn't, couldn't help it. Sorry. No, Sorry. no, I got, yeah, the Dutch genetics have quite large heads. But um, yeah, so that's kind of a brief little version of what okay. I do and how I get around it. And What's it like um, flipping backwards and forwards from being behind the camera and directing to then being in front of the camera or being behind the microphone and taking direction? It's difficult. 
is actually quite hard. Like what, my strength is doing the jobs. So being behind the camera, I'm fine. Being behind a microphone, fine. Being in front of the camera, fine. Um, organizing that and that's the hard part. I don't have an assistant or anything or anything like that really. Mm -hmm. So trying to, yeah, the logistics of going from one job to another and literally switching within hours from going into meetings and having directorial meetings and then going into a voice gig, you know, moments later, that can be quite stressful. Making sure you're getting across town, making sure I've got the dates right, making sure I've got all that, all that sort of stuff. That's, mm -hmm. that's my weakness. Okay. And I've had triple bookings in the past and things and it's been a effing nightmare. But does the dyslexia better. Does the dyslexia play into that at all? I don't know. I don't, I don't honestly know if it does, maybe. I think um, I've definitely gotten better. Like my reading, actually, um, over the years, doing all the voice work and having to read scripts all the time, and even you know having to write up scripts and, and and whatnot, it has naturally improved my dyslexia and my reading. Like I literally, I I went from struggling to read a paragraph in one go to mm. I can now get through two or three pages without stopping. And that's quite a big thing. Yeah, that normally is. For dyslexics, what I find, or the way I describe dyslexia is that when you're reading, it becomes like concrete. So you're reading, 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 and then it gets slower and slower. And it's like the concrete, as if you're standing in concrete mm -hmm. and you can move around freely. And then it starts to set and then your feet just slowly get caught up. And before you know, all the words just look like mush. Right. And I just stop, you know, and then I'll go away for a few minutes and then come back and I can do it again. Do you think it's? Do you think the commonality, or is it common? I, I I don't I don't have dyslexia. I've had a few friends who've you know who have um, discovered later in life, like as adults, they've been diagnosed. Oh, I didn't diagnosed. know until I was twenty one. Right. So yeah. so they struggled through school, had mm. like this sense of I'm just a terrible student, or I'm dumb, or whatever, and um, then they they've got a diagnosis of dyslexia later in life, but then it's um, it's you know it's almost at that point that they just kind of go, oh, okay, well I'm going to adjust to not being a reader. Whereas mm. for you, it's kind of a necessity of the job. You mm. have to be a reader. Mm. Um, do you think that that's, um, I mean, I, is that an accurate description? But prior, without the necessity of it for your job, do you mm. think you would have kind of persevered? I think, um, I, I read very slowly. Um, I can't read quick. When I'm doing voice work, if normally if it is a big script, I'm able to, I do get it early and I'm able to read through it and rehearse like I'm acting. Uh, but for commercials and stuff, it's easy. You just go in, take a look. And as I said now, my my, my reading has improved phenomenally and I'm, I'm quite confident with it now. Mm. But I, I never, it's funny you should say that because I never found out I was dyslexic until 21. I didn't even know what dyslexia was until I was 21. When I was at high school, I just talked my way through, I bullshit my way through high school and school in general. And this is, this is how weird it is. I went to high school, I failed school C. Right. But they put me through to sixth form anyway. Mm -hmm. Failed that. I got into seventh. No, I, I think I was sick in year sixth. Um, I was there for, before you will think I'm a retard. I was there for sport. I, was, uh, I played rugby. Mm -hmm. So I was quite good at that. So I, I, I was going back every year just to play rugby really. And I never really clicked onto the fact that I, I'm actually very good at reading. I kind of knew but didn't really pay any attention to it. I never really did the work and I just talked. And by the time I was in seventh form, I was head boy and it hadn't passed a single subject in his entire school <laughs> career. True story. I don't know. 
Do you think that's the influence of sports though? I mean, I don't think I can say what school I went to now after I said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. It's, it's yeah. fine. I'm sure it's fine. Um, but do you think that's the influence of sports on New Zealand culture? That even even at high school, people are so kind of nuts about if you're if you're good at a sport, then you know you can kind of finagle your way. Yeah, I think back then it was a little more rough and rugged. Mm-hmm. All we cared about was rugby. Let's play rugby. Let's you know. I mean, I went to a very uh, Wesley College was a very uh, rugby dominant school. It was where Jonah Lomu went. We mm-hmm. won the we won the national championship twice when I was there. Um, you know. Did you play in that team? Yes. Oh, not with Jonah. Not with Jonah. Oh no, 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 no. no but no. the 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 national Winning. championship. Yes. Oh. Yeah, that was in 1997. My last year. Oh, nice work. Mm. And yeah, I think they tried. Like most rugby players, if you're really good, you just did things like PE and art, and you know subjects that were an require, easy pass. Yeah. Yeah. Not hugely academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me. And, and unfortunately, at Wesley, you didn't have media studies. You didn't have, right? You know, things like that back then. So mm-hmm. I think they do now. I have no idea. Um, so there was nothing really there that interested me very much. And it's, I was—I really liked maths. I was good at maths, and I found out dyslexic people genuinely are quite good at maths. Okay. And then as soon as you start introducing uh, uh, letters instead of numbers, it's all over. Algebra and Algebra calculus. And like, uh, what the? F- um, I was out. And yeah, so statistics yeah. though. How do you feel about statistics? Oh, I just didn't really even look at it. I paid no attention to it. <laughs> so when you were at school playing yeah. rugby and all that, did you actually were you always were you always keen on on media? Was that something that you were yeah. always interested in? Yeah, I always had this maybe slightly romanticised uh, uh, version of Hollywood that always ran through my head. You know, I love going to the movies. I loved watching the Academy Awards every mm-hmm. year. There was just I just had to watch it. You know. Yeah. And it fascinated me. And when you come from rural New Zealand, they don't give a shit about that stuff. So I'm like, oh, did you see the Academy Awards? Keisha Castle Hughes, blah, blah, blah. They're like, what? And that wasn't her. What was who? Who won for? Uh, Anna Paquin. Anna Paquin. Yeah. When Anna Paquin won, I was all excited. And I went to like rugby training. I was talking about it. And everyone's looking at me like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about, you weirdo? <laughs> but no, I love, yeah, I love entertainment. Like entertainment's cool. I love the old school tap dancing musicals and all that sort of thing. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. really into all that. The big show. I loved all that sort of thing. Mm. Where did that come from? I don't really know. I don't really know. Uh, in my family, I'm the only one who, in my entire extended family, who really works in this industry. Mm. In any form whatsoever. Um, but my nana, my grandmother, uh, she was Samoan. And she and her sisters used to perform in the Civic back in the 50s and 60s and apparently they were amazing singers. They were like the Andrews sisters and she, wow. had, she had a voice like um, uh, Ella Fitzgerald and she was pretty amazing apparently. Wow, okay. Uh, I never really got to hear that because unfortunately she had a stroke in the 70s. So growing up with Nana until she passed away when I was 14, you know, she just had this croaky voice. You could, she could speak properly and all that but you, you was, there was no singing coming out of that. Right. Those tonsils anymore. But um, apparently, back in the day, she was quite a dish. There and you go. An amazing singer. So, so uh, there's a know. thread anyway. That there's you a can thread. Kind there's a very loose it. thread. Yeah. And personality-wise, my grandfather's Northern Irish and he's nuts. So, <laughs> you know, he's got a gift of the gab. I'm hanging around a guy like that. You know, you sort of learn some social skills that are quite <laughs> handy. Well, I think you know all of the great Celtic origins are natural-born storytellers, right? 
I think so too. Yeah. He was very good. He was amazing. He could, just, he could just hold court. You know, you've got some people in the world that you just hold court. Yeah. He was one of those people. Yeah. It was amazing. You can just want to listen to any story that they tell and yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is kind of cool. Okay. So this, this podcast is about transformation. Yes. So let's talk about what's the most significant transformation you've experienced in your life? Most significant. It's quite recent actually. Um, it's, I think we in the creative world, we call it more like a reinvention. You reinvent yourself every mm-hmm. once in a while. And the evolution. What's that? The evolution the of evolution. self. Yeah. Yeah. And I, later, later in life, I discovered that I suffer from depression. And um, yeah. <laughs> look, it might sound like a silly question, yeah. but how did you discover that? How did I discover depression? Oh, I don't know. Just really hated everything. <laughs> no, it was, let me, let me think. It's, it was later on, like in my late 20s, I think, when I started just getting glum, mm-hmm. you know, feeling down. And in a I, way that didn't seem... In a way that didn't seem um, logical. Right, you okay. Know? You don't yeah. think logically. I think depression is... Um, n- people say, oh, just, you know, be happy, think happy and all that sort of stuff. Sure, that would be great if, if <laughs> you could, you know, but you just can't. You, you just get caught up in these ridiculous thoughts and you overthink things and... Mm-hmm. If you don't have the skills or you don't have the knowledge, which I do now, but if you don't have it at the time, it's fucking scary. And it's really, it's awful. And I was talking before about dyslexia. When you're reading, it's like being in concrete. Well, when you've got depression, I found your brain's concrete. And yeah. you just cannot escape this feeling that's in your head. You know, you cannot get away from it. And so anyway, I... I started noticing it in my late 20s, didn't pay any attention to it. There's a history of it in my family. My mother's bipolar. My sister's got uh, bipolar as well wow, to a lesser okay. degree. Yeah. Mum's high. My sister's very low. Um, and apparently I found out recently my nana, the singer, was also mm-hmm. suffered from uh, – she was a raging alcoholic apparently, which I didn't know, and also <laughs> suffered from depression as well. So it's mainly on the female side of the family, the males. We aren't we, – we don't – we wouldn't categorize ourselves as bipolar or massively depressive, but we're very emotional. Mm. Like we get very emotional. But anyway, later on, uh, through my 20s, I took far too seriously. My early 30s, I started to relax and stopped giving a fuck mm-hmm. and started relaxing a bit. But there are certain things that you just can't escape and bad relationships are one that triggers things and those are the things that can really affect you. And that's what happened to me. Um, so well, that sucks. That sucks. Yeah. That's shit house. No, could we just avoid, you know, what do you call it? Uh, toxic relationships. Toxic that'd be, relationships. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. But, but imagine no, yeah. we'd be, I think we'd be less evolved and more boring humans if we avoided toxic relationships, we to would. be fair. And the lessons you learn from them. Yeah. Like I learned valuable lessons from my most recent one, which was a couple of years ago now. This is when the transformation happened. Okay. So I'm always, you know, I shouldn't say I'm always trying to change. That's wrong. But every once in a while, you know, some people, they want to transform and they go get a wickedly different haircut or they go buy a new car or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. I used to be that person. I was like, I'd, I mentioned before I had long hair. Yeah. I thought, right, I'm going to cut it all off, cut it all short. That was my big transformation when I was 31, 32. Was there an internal motivation for that external transformation at the time? Boredom. I think oh, I was okay. bored at the time. Right. I don't think there was anything much more dramatic than that and I think that boredom 
because it's a cliche, but it's yeah. true. Like, you know, uh, you break out from a relationship, you get a haircut. You um like you change jobs or you get fired or whatever, think, and you you yeah. you know you change something about your external appearance to be like yeah. okay I'm going to be slightly different now. Yeah, just going to wash that slightly. off and here we go. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, I, I think back on it now. No, that's right. I did break up with somebody, and then I got that, and then I cut all my hair off. That's right. Well, I'm glad we found an insight related to the haircut. We found an insight to the haircut. <laughs> I think so. No, and but you go through those little changes, and you want to you want to reinvent things. And for what I was saying before, like for normal. Situations, people get haircuts or buy cars or do something. You know, they go. They have uh, what do you call it? The retail therapy. Yeah. Um, but I used to do that, but um, with depression, it's quite different. You know, depression is one of those things where you need to sort of um, discover a lot more. You have to find the reasons why you would want to transform, mm-hmm. as opposed to I'm just going to go and change. So, yeah, depression. I had, uh, so I've had, depre- I'd suffered from depression for around about five years properly. And it was horrendous stuff. Like I go pretty deep, like suicidal thoughts. Mm. Um, it was horrendous. And, um, and it's not all, we mentioned woman before, it's not all necessarily breakups. It's just, you just get tied up in knots financially, you get tied up in knots career wise, you start questioning what you're doing. You're, for me anyway, it was, it was, fuck, am I, why am I here? I should be here. And I don't do that very often. I don't often think, right, I'm say 35. I should have X, Y, Z. I don't often do that. But for some reason, sometimes you just think, oh, it would be just easier if I had X, Y, Z. Or I followed a more common path. Do you think that has to do with um, a sense of belonging or trying to fight the the isolation of doing life a little bit differently than the 95%? Yes. I think sometimes it is. Like there's a checklist, right? Like there is that mainstream societal checklist of do, you know, get the the job, get the OE, do the relationship, get the kids, you know, those kind of things. And then certain other aspects, you know, like um, the getting on the property ladder or ticking off the box of international holidays and all that kind of stuff that starts to create a bit of a map of this is what everybody else is doing and – in my life, anyway, where I've where I've found myself stumbling um, into that comparative game of, you know, and I'm and I kind of have this core. My, it's really easy for me to fall into envy. It's really easy for right. me to fall into like, oh, man, everybody else has something that I'm missing out on. Yeah. Um, but I think that comparative thing can be really dangerous, particularly if when you are feeling, if you are starting to feel isolated and you're starting to step into that depression thing. The mm. checklist just doesn't help. No. Particularly if you're like us and we work yeah. in kind of creative fields where, I mean, you know, half my family doesn't understand my job. You know, they, yeah. they like and appreciate oh, yeah. me, but they don't really yeah. know what it is I do for a living. Yeah. There's the other <laughs> There's the other child. Yeah. Yeah, no. Actually, and it's interesting, that it's, it's, it's a good point that you bring up. We, we Lists and stuff don't necessarily work. We're so sporadic in our lifestyles. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Every I don't know what I'm doing. I will wake up on Monday morning and not know. I have no idea what the week holds until the end of Monday, and then it's like, okay, there's my week, and I've got it planned out. That happens regularly, almost all the time. And uh, with depression, one of the things that I was starting to discover was because it's so such a clusterfuck mm-hmm. life, and, and trying to make make sense of it all and trying to bring it all together. Um, I was getting confused. I was saying before, I'm not very good at the logistics of life. Like I, I double book, I triple book, and I start disappointing people. And then that was that was a big part of depression for me. And that can be taken advantage of by certain people. 
Like, because I do feel disappointment when I haven't um, achieved something for someone or I said I'd do something for someone because I used to be a real yes person. Mm. Um, that would that would affect me quite badly and some people could see that and they would, and some people can manipulate you a little bit and just, you know, use that um, moment of lack of confidence, that, mm-hmm. that moment to, to really get at you. And that's happened from time to time. But... Um, over time, I've become a no person. It's like, nah, can't do it. I haven't got time. Sorry about that. Not going to happen. Um, just well boundaried. Yeah, boundary. Just creating those boundaries. But back to reinvention. So I went through a real bad patch uh, a couple of years ago, and it was the worst depression I've ever had. Like, it was horrendous. I was waking up for about three months. I woke up every morning thinking about, am I going to kill myself today? Mm. How am I going to kill myself today? You know, I started thinking, what would be the least painful way of doing it? Fucked up stuff like that. It was horrible. Mm. And it got so bad. In the, for a lot of depressives, the morning's the worst time. For some reason, I don't know what it is. There's probably a scientific reason behind it. You feel your worst in the mornings when you get up. You lie in bed. You don't want to get up. You don't want to face the day. You just want to ignore everything and stay there and just... You know, life sucks. And and for some people, they can never get out of that and they can spend years in that and, you know. Um, so anyway, I went, I went through, through three months of that, about three months of that, and I, I started being afraid of going to bed at night because mm. I didn't want to wake up in the morning to feel like that. Wow. I'd be happy at night, loathe going to bed because I know I'm going to wake up feeling depressed. Mm-hmm. That was the sort of mentality I was going through at the time. Were you self-medicating to get through the days? Self-medicating? Like, no. What well, do you know self-medicating? Well, just, I mean, people people medicate with all sorts of things, right? With um, with with alcohol, with yeah. drugs, with food, with yeah. social engagements, you know, just stuff that kind of helps you get through the, the slog of the day so that by the time you do mm. go to bed, you're just kind of numb to no, everything else. I didn't self-medicate. I, I, I've never been a huge drinker and I, I've never really been into drugs that much, although I've partook, you know. We all have. Not all of us, but you know. And no, I didn't really self-medicate, which is lucky. Um, I spent about three months feeling that pain. Mm. But oh, before that happened, I sort of developed the skills or the know-how because of my mum and my sister. I realized, I convinced myself or I talked to myself that it's a chemical imbalance. I just need to fight through it. So those mornings were horrible. It was about an hour of the worst imagination you can think of. Mm. The worst shit that you're just inventing in your head. Mm-hmm. And then after all, I just sort of like calm myself down. I got the, I worked out how to do it and I just got over it and carried on with my day. Um, and then I thought to myself, right, what am I going to do about this? I looked at the grand scheme of things and was like, well, this is, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Clearly, mm. this is terrible. I need to do something. So I decided I'm going to go and see a counsellor. I've never really done that before for a relationship. I'm going to go and go see a counsellor. I am going to stop drinking completely. Mm-hmm. I am going to change myself physically. I'm going to get fit. I am going to stop eating carbs. I know all the foods that I shouldn't eat, such as breads and all that sort of thing. I have bad reactions to gluten and all that and sugar. Cut all that out. So for six months, and I had a friend do it with me too, which was great because you can hold yourself accountable. I, right, I recommend yeah. to anyone listening if you – if you're going through any depression or anything along those lines and you just want to make a change and you need, or, or even you're overweight or any, any, you've got something wrong physically, 
physically or, or anything like that. Do it with somebody else because you can hold yourselves accountable and you can set goals for each other. So me and my mate, we just said, right, six months, no drinking, no uh, bad food, we just to eat clean and work out. I worked out, he didn't, he wasn't, he's not really a workout kind of guy, but he just wanted to do the diet stuff. Yeah. So we did it and and I got, uh, I was saying I got um, counseling as well and the counseling was amazing. The counseling was great. So it was, it was a bad breakup that got me into it and I went and saw uh, somebody who was a, a couple specialist and we had three sessions together and she just broke it down. She broke down the personality traits between me and the former and we spoke about it and we worked it out and I was like, oh, it just made sense. Right. You can't make sense of stuff yourself. You quite often in life need people to tell you or give you either affirmation or criticism about a lot of things in life. And I think if you're depressed, you need someone neutral to do exactly that. Right. To break down the things that are around you and to put you on some sort of path. But the main thing is they put you on a mental path. They, they say to you, look, stop thinking like that because your thinking is irrational. These are the reasons why. Was it hard for you to hear someone say your thinking's irrational right now? <laughs> no, because I knew. Right, I like, okay. Clearly, and now I'm like, how do I... Yeah, no, it wasn't a problem at all. Like, I, I, I get it, you know. I mm -hmm. said, like, uh, I understand depression. I understand how the mind works in certain situations. But you can understand it as much as you want. Sometimes you just cannot escape that feeling. Hi, sorry for the brief interruption, but you're hopefully used to them by now. This is just a simple request to say, if you have not yet, jump along to thetransformationist.org and join the sign-up list because coming from next week, there's going to be some exclusive content just for people who are subscribed to that email newsletter. I'd love to see you over there. Meanwhile, back to the episode. I'm fascinated by um, because your experience, like you're sitting here talking about it, and you're quite you're quite vulnerable and quite open about it. Quite matter of fact, mm. there's a lot of conversation. Um, obviously, suicide and suicide rates are skyrocketing, yeah. particularly particularly amongst men, and particularly amongst men actually of your age, as much as as much as anything. Yeah. Um, do you think? One of the things that one of the one of the things that people talk about is that men don't go get they don't go and get help because yeah. it's too vulnerable, it's too emotional, they're not connected, they're not engaged with their feelings. But mm -hmm. actually, you know, you're kind of the opposite of that. You mm. you when you got to a point of saying uh, this isn't all right, I need some help, you went and got help. Mm. Was that was that just because of? Um, and I'm genuinely curious. Was it just mm. because of the exposure you'd had growing up to kind of dealing with the mental health issues that your family had faced? Or were there other things that keyed into it that made it easier for you to, to tackle it? I think it was I had kind of gotten to a point where no, I don't I don't maybe, maybe my family's uh, situation had something to do with it, but this was genuinely just me going, shit, I need to get help. Oh, and, and actually one thing I forgot to mention is I've never taken antidepressants. I mm -hmm. don't do, I will not fix this chemically. You know, I'm not saying that everyone should do that. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, uh, antidepressants and things work wonderfully for a lot of people. But for me, I 
don't believe in it and I try to do things as naturally as possible. Mm-hmm. If things got to a certain point and it wasn't getting fixed, okay, then I'd look for some sort of kickstart. But yeah. Anyway, that was just a little disclaimer. <laughs> um, uh, but no, my, my, my choice for going to see a uh, counsellor was purely my own and it was, I just needed, I just wanted to, the re, it was the reinvention thing. It was like, right, I am going to change. I am going to change everything and I'm going to go cold turkey on the food and I'm going to go just hardline with everything. So everything that I can possibly do to get myself out of this, I'm just going to do it all at once. Mm-hmm. Counseling, food, diet, yeah, um, workout, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, mind, body. Mind, get body. Get both things happening. Soul, everything. Soul, yeah. I even went back to church a couple of times. How's that? Did you? I did. My goodness. I did. What was that like? Didn't last long. And... Um, <laughs> No, it didn't last long. I was, I think there was. It got to a point where okay, I'm doing too much now. Let's just. You have to manage change. You do right. Like you've yeah. got to figure out what's the momentum that I can actually do this and make it sustainable. Yes. Otherwise, world implosion. Yes. Because uh, your body can't keep up with the rate of change. Your mind can't accommodate the rate of change. No. And then, you mm-hmm. know, potentially, if you depending on your perspective on that, if that pushes you back into, oh, I failed at this. Or, yep. oh, yeah, I've let myself down or whatever. That can be super unhealthy. Yep. Um, so what happened? You give up You give up the sugar, you give up the booze, you start working oh, out hardcore. What happened? Um, apart from the abs. Apart from the abs. <laughs> so for six, that, that six months was interesting because um, I did it all on my own. What, what I mean by that is I invented my own diet, I invented my own workouts because I used to be a personal trainer when I played rugby. Mm-hmm. And... I just went from the knowledge that I had and we have this awesome thing now called YouTube and there's so much on there to do with diet and, and workouts and all that sort of sort of thing. And I just I just looked at all that and I, I came up with my own plan and I did it myself. And the and, and no drinking's easy, you just stop drinking. And not everybody finds it that easy. No, but I mean like <laughs> the, the the way you do it. Yeah. No, that's true, it isn't that easy. For some, I guess. But, but you're me, right. The way you the way you do it is you just stop ordering yeah. and you stop you buying. Stop yeah, just drink water. Yeah, um, save heaps of money. Don't you? Oh my oh. word! <laughs> I went from you know in the summertime when you're going out, you can spend up to two hundred bucks a night. Auckland, thank you. But no, you do save a lot of money. But a lot of things I started noticing were uh, the biggest things was mental clarity. Uh, depression went away. Uh, as soon as I cut all breads and all carbs out, <clears throat> I don't know if it was the alcohol so much, but it was definitely breads and carbs uh, and sugars. I um, I just, the depression just evened out. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. Sorry, my moods evened out and the depression right. went away. The highs came down, the lows came up and I was it was like listening to blues. You know what I mean? You're just in this like nice mental state. And that was constant. I was getting up, I was... Um, Getting up in the morning and not feeling horrendous. Now, one other one other thing that that six months uh, taught me was discipline. And I, what I've worked out, as we said before, our lifestyles are quite sporadic; they're all over the place. And what I've learned uh, from that six months is we all need an element of discipline. We all need an element of regularity in our lives. Rhythm, yeah. Rhythm. Everyone has to have some sort of rhythm. So I was doing things like getting up every morning at 5.30 and going to the gym. Then I would go to the same cafe every day and I would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And while I'm there, I've got my phone out and I'm looking at right, answering emails, planning my day, and I've got, I've got everything done by 7 o'clock. Great. And then suddenly I'm, I'm, I feel free. 
you know. I feel free to be the idiot that I can be for the rest of the day, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, do the mahi, get do the, the treats. Mahi. Exactly, and and that was, I didn't realize it, and yet now when I think of it, it's it's so obvious. I think it's so critical for everybody to have that, you know, solidarity in their in their routine. Um, to start with or have some sort of solidarity, whether it's, I don't know, reading the paper every morning and sitting down and having a glass of orange juice. Little things like that at the same time every day um, sets you right. Do you think, is it, so my observation is that it's not just routine or rhythm. Mm. I like the word rhythm just because yeah. I think it's nice, nice to say rhythm. 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 Routine sounds quite masculine. Rhythm sounds a bit more feminine. I think. Okay, yeah. I don't yeah. know that I would have given it that um, <laughs> that gender split, but we can sure. work with that. It's all right. Sure, yeah. Um, the uh, but one of the things that I think is important about rhythm is that you can't just you can't just adopt a rhythm. You have to adopt a certain intentionality about it. Mm-hmm. Because every, I mean, a vast majority of people have a rhythm. They get up in the morning, they have breakfast, they get right, dressed, yeah, and they go you. to work. Right. Yeah. But it's not the same as having an intentional rhythm that sets you up for your day. That yeah. kind of is setting you up. Into, where you're intentionally saying, I'm doing this and this and this, mm. and these things are getting me into a mindset. Mm. Now, it might just be that I'm overplaying the, you know, getting a bit too thoughtful about it. No, but I think what you're saying is there's, there's two types of rhythms. You've got the rhythm that you're doing for somebody else and you've got the rhythm that you're doing for yourself. Mm. So you get up every morning, you make coffee, you send the kids to school, you drive to work, you do your work, you come home, da 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 da, da. That's a rhythm which has been planned by somebody else. Yes, Majority of it's been planned by somebody else. Thank you, Industrial Revolution. Thank you very much. But <laughs> for some people, I believe us included, we never, uh, we never, we never threw those chips in. You know, we um, we play by our own. We beat our own, we beat by our own drum. We create our own rhythm. Ooh. And um, quite good dancers. Quite good dancers. <laughs> but it's like jazz. jazz. Let's look at jazz. Jazz is something which can go in any direction. It's a music form that is made up on the spot. But there is a rule somewhere. There, there is are a rules. beat. Yeah. There are rules. And and I think that with life, I think you could you could be a creative and you can do what we we do and have different days every day, or you can have that. I'm not going to say mundane because I'm sure a lot of people love their jobs. Or you can have a a, a normal job and and get up do the nine to five thing. Um. But you've got to create your own rhythm somewhere and mm-hmm. have your own little slice of something that you do regularly, not every day, but regularly, and it just sets you right for life. You know? And that's what I discovered during that little period. I found that I had to have rhythm in the morning for at least two hours, get everything done before everybody else. And there was something really awesome. Little awesome things happen at 5.30, if you get up at 5.30. One, you beat everyone to the punch. Mm-hmm. I was going home from the gym or going home from my cafe, and everyone's just getting up and starting. And that felt cool, you know? Not saying I was better than anybody else, it was just like, I've got much more time to work with. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. So that was an interesting little little side added extra that I got from it all, and that was, yeah, that was rad. Um, and yeah, so mentally, yeah, mentally that, that made a big change and then obviously going to the gym and then the diet and all that sort of thing. And the evenness, I was saying before, the evenness of no carbs, no sugar. And when you're, when you're doing that, it also becomes a hobby, right? Oh, okay. So what I mean by that is you start doing it and you get a little bit obsessed with it because you're, you're working it out. Right, okay. You know, 
So I was saying before, you, there's YouTube. You find YouTube and you're starting to look up all these and you start to listen to all these different like dietitians and all these different workout experts and da 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 You start piecing it together and you listen to scientists and they're breaking it down and it becomes a little bit of an obsession for a little while and that's cool. I found that really Why aren't you just fun. in learning mode? Uh-huh. Right, it's it's fun, yes, but you're in learning mode. Yes. So I don't know if obsession is the right. Maybe obsession it's... sounds a little negative, I suppose. But yeah. Yeah, you're definitely in learning mode. Yeah, learning mode's a much better way of putting it. <laughs> a learning rhythm, shall we say? Yeah, you're definitely in learning mode, and to learn something again. You know, I think they say that every day should be learning something, or every day's a learning day. But for some, for some people, and I think people with depression, every day's not a learning day. Yeah, okay. You know, I don't think you are learning something every day. You're just stuck. Uh, yeah, a lot of days are stuck days. You know? And when you've just kick-started something exciting or you, you believe is exciting and you're making change for yourself and you've decided to do this reinvention, then you just start getting all the research that you can and you're looking at other people. You start following other people's Instagrams and Facebook maybe and you're, you're just seeing how other people do it and you're comparing yourself to them a little bit but you know that they're on their own journey so it's not a comparable comparison, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And um, yeah, it's just fun. And so over the six months, um, yeah, the clarity was amazing. And my my memory, my memory got so much better. It was weird. And I was just, yeah, it was cool. It's, it's, it's difficult to explain. So what's happened since then? What's I mean, since then? I, I, we had a whiskey the other night, so I'm, I've assumed that oh, you I'm haven't. I'm back on the booze hard. <laughs> oh, I'm a, I'm a raving alcoholic. I've got an AA meeting in 20 minutes too. No, I don't. No, no, no. I, we could, we could. So I come back and I think it finished. we finished in October or September. No. Anyway, let's say it was November last year we finished. I had lost about 7 kgs but working out and all that sort of thing, I haven't, you know, it's been great. I, I can, it was a best, I, I feel better now than I did when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And my mate had lost 25 kgs, but he was very thin. Like we, were, we started at the same weight, about 105. He went down to about 85. Whoa. It was, it was crazy. He looked amazing. Mm-hmm. He's put it all back on. Um, <laughs> Do you think that, but what, what, well, yeah, anyway, we, we don't need, let's not, let's, let's not, not analyze him. He has his own journey. Um, <laughs> no, since then, so I, the reason why I put a six month bracket on it was, that's going to be my foundation for life. Okay. So I am going to make these changes over six months' time and they are going to then be the basis of everything I do afterwards. Mm-hmm. I'll start having a little bit of fun later on. I enjoy drinking. Uh, I, I like the flavors. I like gin. I, like, I just like drinking. Not, not, not to get drunk, but just a glass of wine with food. <laughs> yep, yep. That is all good. Or layering all those caveats in there so that mm. nobody thinks, oh, he really I'm was a not raging an alcoholic. alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how we talk about booze, eh? It is. Anyway. It is. Especially in this country where there's a very interesting drinking culture. But, yeah. Um, no, I, I do enjoy drinking and I enjoy socializing. And it was funny how people look at you funny when you're not drinking at events. That's one thing I forgot to mention. You would go, I would go out and being single, you go on dates and they were on the, the why aren't you drinking? It's like, I just don't feel like it. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not currently drinking at the moment. And then you can see their head going, is he recovering alcoholic? What's wrong with him? Is he, is he just not fun? Is he mm-hmm. da, 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 da? And it's like, just relax. You can have a few drinks and it's fine. So that was, that was fun. And then the bigger social events as well, where you're walking around and everyone's getting lit and you're just like sober as. But in a funny way, I liked it. Right. Because you watch all these other people degrade into these 
alcoholic slurs <laughs> and I'm alert and alive and I feel really I felt really, really good. And to to have Sundays again, you know. Right, yeah. Regularly okay. and not feel hungover. Mm-hmm. Um was brilliant. And no, I, I really, I really actually really enjoyed that sobriety. It was fun. But now, so after it finished, I got I started drinking again and I socially drink. I don't tend to get drunk anymore, you know. You go to the big events and I'm I'm pretty cool with it. I like being home by eleven or twelve now. Mm-hmm. You know, you I think that's just because we're getting older. Yeah, pretty and, much is. <laughs> and it let's be honest, sometimes it's really nice just to go to bed. I love it. Like I love it. Feels good. When I'm out and I feel I'm tired. I want to go to bed. And people are like, no, 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 no. Come out, we're going to another bar. We're going to get messed up. Da, 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 da. No. If I go to another bar, I'm going to go to another bar. I'm going to be cranky because I'm tired. I'm just thinking about that pillow. Mm-hmm. And you go home and it's so good. Yeah. It's so good. Um, but no, yes, so I was saying uh, I drink socially again now and a couple of times I've had a few too many. And each one of those times I've woken up the next morning and there's a little sting of depression again because alcohol is depressing. Yeah. And it definitely makes you think again, like, do I really need to drink at all? Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. My answer to that for me is, yeah, because I like, I enjoy the social aspect of it. You know, I enjoy the flavors and all that sort of thing. But certainly when you get drunk, and this isn't just your normal, I'm hungover in the morning, I'll never drink again, feeling that a lot of people have every weekend. This is, it's, it's a genuine, how dangerous is this for me? Yeah. You know? So let's talk about the bounce back mm. because, you know, depression isn't something that you cure once and it goes away. Yeah. Right? It's something that you it's something that you manage as a as an element of self awareness. Mm. Right. So I mean, has it has it has it crept up on you from like since since you made this kind of major transformation, since you created the new foundation, mm. has it crept up again and have you kind of been aware of it and gone, Yep, okay, but I'm managing that. It has. It hasn't crept up anywhere near the amount that it mm. did for the for the ten odd years that I had, you know, sort of suffered from it in different in different yeah. levels. Nowhere near it. Like probably probably the worst is when I just got drunk. You know, right. and the next morning I feel that similar kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a self induced version, which is really shit, and it makes you feel even worse because it's like I did this to myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but not in any long term. I've uh, anxiety happens with work because you know you're trying to piece a lot of things together with jobs, and you're doing. I'm doing multiple jobs all the time, mm-hmm. so you get a little bit of that. But it certainly doesn't get into a, a feeling of failure. Yeah, which okay. Can be, which depression can be like. No, I've it, I haven't been back to that at all. And there have been cer- certain situations where in the past that I, certain situations I've had over the last year where I thought, man. A couple of years ago, this would have really affected me. Right. I would have really felt crap about this. But because I'm driven to improve and I'm, I'm, I've, I've got this sort of ethos now where I'm constantly improving myself mm-hmm. now that I'm getting ever closer to 40. Um, <laughs> the constant evolution of the evolving human. The constant evolution of the evolving human. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just, I'm aware, you know, I'm aware that, you know, I have, I have grace with myself now as well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's don't, I don't blame myself for everything that goes wrong. I don't feel upset if I I've upset other people because um, I just believe that a lot of people are just getting upset because they want to be upset. So within, <laughs> within reason. I mean, yeah. There's, yeah. There's, yeah. Um, and I don't play 
mind games with myself anymore. I don't go for that um, uh, self-sabotage. That was that a, a big part? People, I think so, yes, it was. Okay. You do. You're looking for reasons to be upset. You're looking for reasons to be depressed. And I haven't gone anywhere, anywhere close to that for the last two years. And it's been amazing. I yeah. see it in other people now a lot more. I'm like, would you just stop it? Would you just stop self-sabotaging? Right, I'm, I'm yeah. becoming this expert, you know. But because <laughs> you recognize it, you see it. You can, you can. Well, and then you want to help it, right? Absolutely. You, you're kind of like, oh, don't go down that path. I've been down that path. Come back from the edge yeah. there, buddy. Like, yeah. let's let's stop these behaviors. Oh, especially people who are, uh, say, overweight, I think. Um, what are you saying? Calm like, down. I'm saying nothing, Tash. <laughs> I said for some people, some people are very, very active in there. I'm going to stop. So, <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's another, another cool um, thing that happened when I was doing all this. And I didn't realize it early on, but a lot of people, because I posted one or two things on Instagram before and after pictures and that sort Mostly of thing. Mostly abs. Mostly abs, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I'm not horrendously vain. So I didn't do it v- too much. I just did it to hold myself accountable. Yeah, there is. There's a real accountability to. Yeah. Inst- I, I I post when I run because I'm like yeah. not because I'm trying to be like, hey, check out yeah. check out this curvy girl running around the streets. <laughs> whoop whoop. Yeah. Um, but mostly just because it's accountability, and and yes. there's an element to which for me, which is like, hey, if I can do this, you can do this. Come on, get out there. But yeah, yeah, yeah and and. I was doing it for accountability more than anything. And I, and people were saying to me, oh, it's amazing, you look great and changing. I've started doing it too. And several people from my distant past who, were, who matched me up on Facebook or Instagram, they said, I've started it as well. And then they started sharing their story with me. Mm-hmm. And then, um, oh, I saw some, some this one dude, he was a, he's a gaffer, works in the film. And he says, oh, bro, no, no. I, was, I sat down with him one lunchtime on a, some show we were filming and I was talking about diet and talking about what we were doing and all that sort of stuff. Eight months later, he had lost about 40 kgs. And wow. he said, and he said to me, that was you. And I was like, fuck, cool. <laughs> I didn't know how to react. I didn't know how to yeah. take that. Cause I was doing my journey and I didn't realize that other people saw it as inspirational, you know? Yeah. Anyway, now I understand that. So uh, it's quite cool to be, a, I'm a little more open about, you know, putting things on Instagram, sharing how I'm doing things mm-hmm. and giving a little bit of guidance where it's needed. So well, that's given me a little bit more purpose. And I think probably just like the, the intention of it. Like I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how you feel about this, but the understanding the intention behind what you're doing, it changes mm. it from, oh, Daryl's having a midlife crisis and yeah. like trying to get in shape to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. oh, actually like you're doing something that's a deeper, more meaningful part of building building mm. your life, like actually keeping your life in in a good and healthy place through that mm. process. And I think that's that's a really meaningful part of the story. Do mm. you have? Um, I mean, you've never been shy of having an opinion. <laughs> um, do you have opinions on? Do you have opinions on the whole um, uh, male depression in society? kind of thing like because you're doing this really proactive thing to manage yep. yourself and you're looking after yourself but do you have opinions as to why it's got to the place that it's got or what we should be doing about it mm. I think that um, depression in males between especially between 35 and 45 with some of the figures that I saw are the highest depression rates in this country I'm not sure about the world but I'm pretty sure in the western world it's pretty high as well mm. we see so many men 
killing themselves publicly. You know what I mean? You had that newsreader, I can never remember his name. Greg um, Boyd. Greg Boyd yeah. took his life. And people like Robin Williams, you know, just the, the big ones, people like Robin Williams. Anthony Bourdain. Bourdain. Oh, that was a horrendous one. Uh, Actually, are, there's a friend of mine in the States, can't watch, can't watch the show now. It's too... Really? Yeah, too emotional, too... Too, too much. It's full on. Yeah, it and is. And then, and then there's also I can think of perhaps four, maybe four, maybe half a dozen um, guys who I either know directly or know um, uh, indirectly that have taken their lives within the last two years. Mm. And I'm not hearing the same sorts of statistics uh, from a female point of view, and it makes me wonder why. I'm like, why, why are men doing this? And I think in the world at the moment we live in a very interesting time that is to say that men to a certain degree have lost a lot of their um, masculinity is the wrong word but we're being looked at a lot more and things are changing pretty hard. There's this movement of independence for women with feminism which is I think maybe a little bit misunderstood in some ways. Um, you know, Independence is an amazing thing for everybody. But I don't believe independence means you can do everything by yourself. And I think women over time realize that, you know, I'm as independent as I want to be in my 20s. And then they get to their 30s and it's like, oh, where are the good men in the world? And it's like, well, you kind of left them behind because you were so independent. You know what I mean? Um, I was going to have my jersey off. It's getting quite warm, eh? Yeah, we're headed to an abs reveal. Just kidding. There <laughs> we go. Um, uh, so what I'm, what I'm saying is, uh, in my opinion, men, good men, need to support and provide and do all those things that biologically we've all been sort of doing for the last 200,000 years. Mm -hmm. And having those sorts of things stripped away over the past 60 years incrementally and then suddenly even quicker over the last few years, I think, yeah. that is hard for dudes. You know, we just want to, we, we've had a lot of that purpose taken away. Okay. So when a lot of that purpose is taken away, I think you, you start wondering, what am I, you know, you start wondering, what am I here for? What's, what's my point? What's, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you got that and then a lot of other things compiling on top, like work stress, and then they don't feel adequate. At, some people might not feel adequate at work. And then, and then you can put that on top of maybe someone drinks too much, you put it on top of a lot of, a lot of other things and that just becomes too much and then they will take their lives, you know. And I had an argument with somebody recently. They said to me when, um, so I've forgotten his name again, the newsreader. Greg um, Boyd. Greg Boyd. When Greg Boyd took his life, someone said to me, that was so fucking selfish. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? He goes, that was selfish. Why would he do that? They were on holiday. And he was there with his kids and his family and he took his life. And my thought process behind that is it's like, you, you don't understand what depression is. You don't understand what's going on in somebody's head. When you're depressed and you take your life, I believe, for some people, if, if you're that adamant that you're going to do something that dramatic, you, you are not paying any attention to the things that are around you. You are not paying any attention to what you have in front of you. You're only trying to get rid of this feeling in your head. It's an escape. You're escaping that feeling. It is mm. an internal thing. It has nothing to do with – it's an internal thing that's so uh, debilitating and encompassing that you, you just cannot see anything else that's around you. 
and it goes a little bit too far and you might have one too many drinks or you might just pick up some rope and it happens. Yeah. You know? So what's so, the antidote? The antidote is conversation. The antidote is we need to openly talk about things. Uh, it's funny. Well, it's not funny. It's kind of silly. But the there's this talk of to- toxic masculinity that's going around. And, you know, oh, it's, it's terrible. Men are toxic and toxic masculinity, blah, 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 blah. Men shouldn't be so masculine. Beta males are great, blah, 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 blah. They're not. Um, <laughs> and, and, and we're being told that. We're being told that, you know, men need to express themselves more, come out and share their feelings and talk about their problems and all that sort of thing. But we're also living in a society which is bashing the shit out of men at the moment and, and saying that, oh, no, we're not going to listen to your problems because they're not, as, mm. uh, they're not as bad as our problems. And it's like, well, why are you comparing? Why are we comparing problems, you know? I mean, um, there, there, there's two... Very different, and, and men and women. There's two very different uh, evil sides to men and women that can be, you know, men are aggressive and can cause physical harm. Women can be manipulative and cause mental harm. Mm-hmm. You know, so one of them is easy to see, and yeah. the other one's not so easy to see. Okay, and I think that there needs to be more discussion about both sides. You know, and, and more open discussion and the ability for everyone to come out. We we. Uh, women are coming out and talking about the problems that uh, men have been um, giving, but no one's really, and we're all listening. We're all listening. We all have to listen because it's there and in front of us, but no one's really listening to the other side. No one's really listening to the male side until it's too late. And it is too late for a lot of people. And we're seeing that Mm. way too much. So it's kind of a third way of conversation, I think, right? Because the the current way we've been trying to have that conversation has not been working. So the finding finding a way of navigating it being less about here are my problems and then you tell me about your problems and somehow we have to figure out mm. how to how to be different in order to solve someone else's problem. Mm. There needs to be like a, a, a third party meeting place, a third a third space yeah. of conversation where we all have to solve each other's problems, right? I can't say, hey, here's what you here's what you did to me, Daryl. Now mm. you change so that I somehow feel better about myself. Yeah. Right? That's never gonna work. Yeah. And vice versa. I also think there's a very, uh, uh, in society in general, there's a really bad um, walking towards, everyone's just being independent and insular mm-hmm. with themselves. So for us, I think between 35 and 45, we were the last of the, the groups that sort of played rugby and rugby clubs and they were, pro- they were prosperous. They were, they, were, they were big parts of the community. Mm-hmm. There was things like scouts. There was, I'm not saying these things don't exist anymore, but they are way, way smaller than they were. Yeah, way diminished. They're tiny. And I think there is a lack of meeting places for men. There's a lack of places for men to get together and actually have good conversations. And I hate to bring up locker room talk because it's got such a bad rap. And and, and for a lot of obvious reasons, I think it should have a bad rap. Mm -hmm. But, but when you're hanging out with dudes, you're going to say some dumb shit and you're going to express some dumb things and you're going to say some things that you might perceive as funny and everyone will have a laugh at it and all that. I actually think that doing that with a group and being being with your peers and actually just having a moment to be a bunch of dickheads, mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing. 
Mm-hmm. I think men should do that. We should be getting together and expressing those ridiculous thoughts we have and just throwing it at one another because it's not all sexual innuendo and all sex and all that sort of stuff. It's also like against each other and you have men have these stupid fights, fight clubs, whatever. Um, being able to just be men. And unfortunately, I'm seeing more and more that groups of guys hanging out and being like that is being described as toxic. And I think quite the opposite. I think guys, just like just like women hang out together and you know, putting in crew terms in the old days, you have the sewing circles and you have all that sort of stuff. You have community activities for women and mothers. They would get together and talk and, and talk stuff. And you can't tell me all of that was clean. And, you know, and they're, all, they're all having good yarns. Whereas for men, you know what I mean? It's almost being seen as if it's 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 a negative thing for guys to hang out in groups. Well, I think you could actually take it all the way back to the 60s, right? Where, yep. where men worked until 5 o'clock and then they had between 5 p.m. and 6 p.m. for the mm. 6 o'clock swill, right? Yep. When the pubs closed the doors and then they yep. had to go home, you know, to the families. And, and there's, I guess what I see is that mm. the social the way that men and women have related both to each other but also to their own gender, right? The way the way men talk to men and the way women talk to women has always fundamentally been shaped around the, fab- the fabric and structure of society. Yeah. So for women raising kids now, more women work than ever before yes. and they don't have the same... It used to be that women raised their kids in the neighbourhood that they lived in where they had a, a ready-made group of friends who were all raising their kids together and that yep. was what they did, right? Yep. I've got friends who tell me, it's funny, we're both sitting here talking, we don't have kids, we're like what are you <laughs> living the good life, but we'll tell everyone else how it is. Yep. Um, but, you know, raising kids is a lonelier experience now because they they get kids up in the morning, they get yep. them off to school, they go to work, then they come home, kind of race the kids through dinner, put them to bed, hopefully read a story, you know, some sort of quality time and then go about the rest of life. And, and so even family moments happen and more and more fragmented moments Mm. and so how do you shape when everybody is running around living a very independent a geographically diverse Mm. and dispersed life Mm. you know how do you find moments for all of those gatherings i think you i think you're right i think that there's a big gap missing for for what those spaces used to be Mm. so what was it uh give me the question one more time how do we no you think how do we solve the problems of the world Yeah, I mean, like, what's what's the new space? I don't know. Because yeah. I th- I listen to somebody like I listen to somebody like you talk about your journey through that and yeah. your own, and it has been relatively independent. You went and yeah. got help, but it was independently done. Yeah. Um, and and I think to myself, okay, you're now. I think probably, you know, and I could probably can say this is somebody knows you. You know, I feel like you're a relatively great example of an alpha male who's not so far removed from you know, appreciating what's good and healthy about femininity, yeah. um, that it's that, you know, that it's the either or that I think women are so mm. afraid of. Mm. Um, but I guess my question just is like, where's a space for people like you mm. uh, to, you know, encourage and show the way for others and just for men to kind of gather in a way that is uh, where he- where healthy masculinity is actually at the forefront mm. versus the, the toxic thing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question at the moment because it's changed so much in the last 20 years that, I mean, we could say things like, well, you can have online forums and all that sort of stuff where dudes can get together and type to each other, but that's not really going to answer the question. Mm-hmm. That, that's not going to solve the problem. Um, it, 
we need to try and find ways of actually hanging out. And yeah, I don't know. You got workplaces and all that sort of thing, but then if you've got um, co-ed workplaces, you know that's that's not really the same. You know, you still yeah have to you know there's mm. there's rules. I mean, mm-hmm. we need to be in places where there are no rules, where we can just be dudes and be idiots and mm-hmm. not worry about somebody seeing things or recording something or taking offense to something. Right. Um, that idea of um, just good, let it be what it is. Conversation that's kind of behind your podcast, right? Yes, it is. It's very much like that. The funny thing is that we're talking about, oh, men should be doing this and da-da-da-da-da. Most of the podcast members I've had have been female so far. <laughs> it's all chicks, which is great. No, it's just so happens that it's worked out like that. But yeah, my, my podcast is all about just coming in and just being yourself and just talking what your concerns are and it's a safe place and there's no rules and there's no one watching over my shoulder to make sure that we're saying certain things. It's just... You know, whoever it is, whether I'm there with another guy, it's just a couple of dudes being dudes. And if I'm there with another chick, it's just like, you know, a guy and a girl just trying to sort out the differences between men and women and mm-hmm. the rest of the world. Um, yeah, actually podcasting, you know, is one of those places where you can, although it's only one-on-one and sometimes maybe you can have a couple of guests, that is one of those places where we can actually have these types of chats. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is why I think podcasts are becoming more relevant now. You listen to people like Joe Rogan and other podcasts from the States. It really is that. It's just a, a, a guy who speaks his mind and he gets guests in and he, they, they, they feel safe enough that they can speak their minds. And for the rest of it, we're just listening to it and we're tuning in. Mm-hmm. You know, We're not part of that conversation, yet we can relate to that conversation and we're hearing things that you know, will encourage us and, and, and in some ways improve our lives in some way or another just by hearing people talk the way they do. So, yeah. Okay, podcasting is going to save the world. That's, <laughs> that's pretty much how it's going to work. Podcasting is going to save the uh, world. Hey, but I would, like to, I would like to see more of it though. Um, interesting, an interesting example of this is when I went to the hot pools like a few years ago, um, different ethnicities come along and they're hanging out and all that sort of stuff and you've got all the white dudes and white people, they're all hanging out, guy, girl, guy, girl, guy, girl, guy, girl, guy, girl, guy, girl. Uh, a group of Indians came in, massive group. They all came pouring in and they're all in the pool and they're all playing together. And in a heartbeat, all the men went to one side, all the women went to another side. All the women are talking about kids and family and all that, da, 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 or whatever it is they talk about. And all the men are sitting there, if they had cigars, they would look like they were just, you know, acting yeah. like Master Universe. But I watched that and that's where I kind of realized this, this, this thing where I think that we need to hang out with the same sexes more and be open to the same sexes more and be idiots or be whatever. And uh-huh. and um, we need those safe places, you know what I mean, where we can feel safe. It's, it's, it's like when you hang out with a group of guys and then as soon as a girl walks in, the whole dynamic of the room changes. You know? And that's not necessarily a positive thing because guys are getting stuff off their chests in, in masculine ways, whether it's, whether it's, ma- whether it's toxic, no, not toxic, I'm gonna say that. Whether it's um, uh, locker room talk, or whether it's deep, meaningful, you know, trying to solve out some very serious stuff. I mean, we, we, we do need more of that sort of thing. Do you think guys do like to talk about their problems and get stuff off their chest when they're given the opportunity? Yes, they do. I think, well, I do, but that's always been me. But when I hang out with, there are some people where they're a bit of a tough nut to crack and, 
you know, eventually you have a couple of beers and you just say, you know, what's going on? You're, you're good. And then over a period of time, sometimes it takes 10 minutes, sometimes it takes two hours, but you certainly get into a deep place. And you can tell that there's impact being made, mm. you know what I mean? Between a couple of blokes or a group of guys. And yeah, that's kind of, yeah, we need more of that. We definitely need more of that. We need more of that. And also more positive role models. That's another thing. There's so, this is such a good conversation. <laughs> There's so much, there are so many separated families out there. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and for a lot of them for the worst possible reasons. And it's like, where are the good role models? You know, where are the good father figures? Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that all families should stay together because obviously some probably should separate and all that. But some some people are, some relationships are splitting up for the silliest of reasons. Mm. And then you've got kids that are in broken homes and then they're watching their dad crumble or they're watching mum crumble and da-da-da. So they're either lacking a father figure or a mother figure. And yeah, that's where I think you need more role models. You need more, you know, father figures out there or good guys out there. And another thing, and another and another thing that the media needs to watch out for is you need to stop glorifying the idiots out there because there are good people out there as well. Mm-hmm. You know? Dickheads yeah. make good stories. It's true. Unfortunately, it is true. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the good people out there, they just get a oh bless, look what you've done, and it's in the back pages of the of whatever newspaper. Mm-hmm. We need to champion people. We need to champion men and women who are, you know, outstanding members of their sex. Is there a fast forward, or is there a way through um, fostering healthy masculinity that it's actually going to be more impactful than than trying to take apart the toxic stuff? That people see and talk about mm. what what we're kind of, we're kind of obsessed with the toxic thing right now. Yeah. I'm sorry to use that word. I know you don't no, like it. No, it's fine. No, no, no. <laughs> but um, but you know we're so focused on that because I think mm. you know there's this there's this effort to try and reset something that's been a bit broken in our society yeah. and to get back to something that is that is healthier or to get forward to something that is healthier. Uh, do you think um, that if we spent more time focusing on fostering the positive stuff, mm. that that would get there faster or sooner? Are we shooting ourselves in the foot by spending so much time thinking about all of the stuff that's terrible? Yeah, I think we are. We're shooting, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, foot by not having an equal amount of positive. Ne- negative things need to be, negative things and you know, genuine toxic masculinity and, and dickheads, you gotta give them some time, but you also need equal amounts of positivity, mm-hmm. which is not happening now. It's you, maybe 90, 10. Do you have a male role model yourself? Is there someone that, that for you? Everyone you're... should sign up to The Rock's Instagram page. <laughs> <laughs> and look at that dude because that motherfucker is doing amazing things. Um, no, it, like, it's silly, but I mean, uh, there's, there's a certain amount of, it's genuine, like genuinely, I, I follow people on Instagram who I think are positive. And The Rock is just like, can he just stop being so goddamn cool? So you got The Rock and um, people like Joe Rogan. Um, yeah, finding people online and, find, and, and, and following them and finding positive role models and people that you can relate to as well, if you can find that in them, in them as well, mm-hmm. that's another little added extra which would work out brilliantly. Nice. Um, and also just in, 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 you know, when you're going out and you find people that are positive, hang out with positive people. You know, it used to be that, you know, bad people are attractive because they're edgy or whatever. But no, find people that are positive and doing great things and, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions and talk to people. Conversation. People want to find good conversation with you. Where do they find you? 
people want to find a good conversation with me, they can find me on my podcast. It is Daryl Harbrecken, Results May Vary, hashtag Results May Vary NZ, hashtag The Voice of New Zealand. <laughs> Uh, hashtag Daryl, you're the voice in my head. Uh, <laughs> at least when I watch TV. There mm. we go. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for uh, uh, giving me yet another uh, place to air my voice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Onwards to the transformation. Onwards to the transformation. And many more. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Transformationist. We hope that the journey doesn't stop here. For more information about this episode and materials we referenced, please visit thetransformationist.org or join the Facebook group for more conversation about this week's episode. Just search for The Transformationist by Tash McGill on Facebook. This episode was written and produced by Tash McGill with production support from Truthwork Media and music is by Hans Van Vliet. The Transformationist is brought to you by Solar Feeder Consulting and TashMcGill.com.